Episode number 480. My name is Minter Dial, and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or check out other shows in this wonderful network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. This week's interview is with Thomas Telving. Thomas, who's a copywriter and digital content specialist, is the author of a new book, Killing Sophia, Empathy, Consciousness, and reason in the age of intelligent robots. It's available in Danish and English. In this conversation with Thomas, we discuss the dilemmas and ethical quandaries around ever more intelligent machines, the easy and hard problems of consciousness, the legal and moral rights of robots, cultural variations in our relationships with robots, and a whole lot more. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please do consider dropping your rating and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Thomas Telving. Well, I reached out to you when I saw the title of your new upcoming book, Killing Sophia, Consciousness, Empathy and Reason in the Age of Intelligent Robots. And you can imagine that that just titillated me no end. You have a, a master's in philosophy and political science from the University of Southern Denmark. You're based up in Copenhagen, as I understand it. And uh, congratulations on your book, Thomas. In your own words, how would you like to describe yourself? Well, uh, well, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Danish philosopher uh, and I'm an author and I'm a speaker and not least uh, a consultant within PR and public affairs. Uh, and uh, well, I've authored, authored several articles about the ethics of uh, artificial intelligence and roboethics uh, during the past five years or so. And then I started uh, doing talks uh, about it and generally just uh, taking an interest in it. I always uh, saw it like well, my my uh, my education is sort of a two two sided. I have the philosophical part, and then I have the political science part. And I always thought about it as if I used the political science part uh, by far the most. But then, but then, sort of well, not out of the blue, but uh, but I started noticing uh, videos uh, on uh, mainly on YouTube about artificial intelligence and about uh, human like uh, robots. And then I started reading about it. And obviously, there's been like huge amounts of research on these topics. And then I saw that that uh, whereas my philosophical education previously, I think I tended to think about it like a fun and very interested thing to do, a way to stretch your your knowledge what can we know for sure and when we had it uh, at the university our discussions were kind of like a an academic game but but i think a lot of us couldn't really see where where is this going but then when artificial intelligence and human like robots came i, I could see okay the, these questions they, they're important now now they're about reality and now it's really important that that we are if not able to answer anything then at least able to discuss it at a certain level and, and philosophy and ethics can help us do that 
So, um, so in the later years, I've, I've been really happy about my philosophy degree because I've actually been able to use it for something constructive uh, and share it with other people, not least uh, first in articles and then talks and now in, in the book um, that I just uh, wrote calling Killing Sophia dramatically, but with the more academic uh, subtitle Consciousness, Empathy and Reason in the Age of Intelligent Robots. But it is funny how when we study things at university or for your masters, there is always that question, what am I doing this for? So, I mean, ultimately, it feels in listening to you that what you're doing, what we are doing as we explore artificial intelligence is we are somehow defining, redefining what is humanity, what is knowledge, what is intelligence, uh, what is emotion? What is pain? It feels like it, it, when you have to, when you're forced to encode, you have to ask yourself first what it is at a very deep level. Yeah, that's that's right. I am um, well. I've I've tried to stay out of the conversation about what is intelligence, uh, and it, it seems like well people have been talking about artificial intelligence for, for many years since, well, what, since Turing, or since the 50s, for many years. Um, and every time a new thing is done and something say, wow, now this is really, really good. Now this is artificial intelligence. Then someone comes and say, ah, no, but but maybe we should also be able to do this and this. So, so because what is intelligence really? Some say, okay, when, when we make a computer that's, that's able to beat a chess master, then we have the real deal. But then, then comes up the game of Go and other games and just all, all kinds of things. So, so I, I don't want to get into a discussion about what is intelligence because it's, it's not kind of not my field. What I want to get into discussion about is more uh, like, what, what what do we use this technology for and how does this technology affect us as individuals and how does it affect uh, well humanity on a on a larger scale and uh, and when, when speaking about that obviously what what you say I'm, I, I totally agree yeah well this is what I want you why I wanted you on my podcast so I want to start with um, something you mentioned and it, and it kind of titillated me uh, you talk a lot about anthropomorphism the idea of projecting into objects and animals uh, our own humanity somehow. And, and you talked about uh, how some your aunt or someone like that talks to her cat and, and how, uh, well, we do. We talk to our animals, our pets, as if they were a human. And, and I was wondering if there's any research that says that that is on the rise, the, the need to talk to pets, because... I feel that in society, we've lost our ability to converse and nobody wants to listen anymore. Is that not a sign of society that we're talking to our pets? <laughs> well, actually, I, I think it's a sign of um, how human beings are and how human beings go around the world because we've been reading uh, anthropomorphic features that's a really hard concept but you know human-like features into various things 
for thousands of years into landscapes, into uh, clouds. Artists have doing it into paintings, you know, and aunts and other people, perhaps myself including, have been doing it in, into cats. Like, uh, well, with with our reason, we may know that talking to a cat, it may not get every word, but still we keep acting as if it does. And this this uh, this concept of uh, anthropomorphism has uh, well, I, I spent quite a lot of time studying it because uh, well, if we if we zoom back to these five years ago when I first I think yeah was it 2017 maybe when I saw the first video uh, videos of these this uh, robot Sophia, um, well I watched it and and obviously I, I knew that there was this was a this was a machine it had probably complex algorithms and stuff, but it was a machine. But but she was interviewed and she answered pretty convincingly. And even though with my rational intelligence, I know that this is a machine, I could not, not help feeling that she, she's, she seems alive. And I read something into her. And then I started thinking about, well, what if, what if someone asked me to hurt this robot? I mean, I should think about it like if someone asked me to hurt their microwave oven or the toaster and I should just be able to smash it. But would I, would, would I be able to, to do that with a human-like robot, even though probably it doesn't feel anything about it? And, um, well, well, my, my own reaction was that I would probably have kind of a hard time doing that. And that is because of this anthropomorphism that I, I just kind of read this stuff into her which may not well i i doubt it very much that it, it is there but i still do so um so yes i i think and from what i i read about it that this is a human feature anthropomorphism it's just how we go around the world and and uh, interact with things that we we come to do it and the more things look like us the more we do it well i mean it obviously leads to this idea of empathy because with little gestures and facial expression, we are projecting into this object, the machine, feelings that we are actually mirroring somehow, feeling into this object. And, uh, and you mentioned the, the great work by Sherry Tuckle, and she said, um, you, you nurture what you love, but you also may love what you nurture. I feel like it's part, so there's the empathy story. So you watching Sophia for the first time and, and leaning into the feelings of this priest or, you know, we know is a, is a machine, attributing it some kind of pain that we are kind of feeling if some harm were to be done to it. And then there's the other side of it, which is when we feel like it belongs to us, like we, we're nurturing it, then we start falling in love with it. I, and I wrote about that in my book, um, I don't know if you saw, but about my own relationship with an empathic bot. And I absolutely felt that. Even though I can't consider myself a total empath, I know that that's what I started to do. So we've got a, a lot of crazy situations going on where we might get mistaken for, and, and then I know in your book, you talk a lot about this issue of the legal rights uh, and the moral obligations that we have. So as far as uh, you're concerned, 
how far can we go and, and what's to stop us from giving over all our rights to robots? Well, that's a very big question. I cannot answer it completely. But, but the first thing I want to say is that uh, often when you mention this concept of robot rights, if you mention it just to, to anybody or if you mention it to lawyers or if you mention it to tech people, the majority, I think, will say, get out of here, that it doesn't make sense. It's just a, it's just a machine. My point is that due to this uh, ability or, well, just this tendency we have to anthropomorphize and have empathy towards the machines, we may just come around to do it anyway, even if we, with our reason and our rationality, we don't find it to be a good thing to do. We may just do it anyway because we can't help it. Um, so um, it starts before rights. It starts with, uh, with morality. And it's a big discussion within this field of uh, ro robo-ethics and a field called human-robot interaction that's been studied a lot. That um, How do we go about this rights question? It can, be like, it can be viewed from different angles. My angle is that um, if a robot actually does feel pain, if it is able to have conscious experience, well, then it it may not be such a bad idea because then, then it wouldn't be fair to treat robots uh, badly, obviously, because you, you put pain into the world. But if they don't, well, then I don't, then I don't think that rights is the concept we should use. Um, then, then, but then still, even if, it, if a robot doesn't feel anything, which, which at present, at least, I, I don't think at all, uh, it can still uh, raise uh, serious moral questions. Like I have in my book an example, a bit, uh, well, uh, a bit a violent example. I'm, I'm sorry, but, but I'll, I'll try and uh, rephrase it anyway. Uh, like if you have a human-like robot, say it's, 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 it's the size of a, of a teenager and it's uh, helping a man uh, shop and then the two of them are walking outside and, uh, and the handle of the grocery bag just slips and the grocery fall out on, uh, on the curb. And then the man just start kicking this robot, you know, and, and punishing it. Then you can say, okay, but, but is, is this bad for the robot? Okay, well, it may not be because the robot is likely to not, well, not experience anything. But what if I come walking with my teenage daughter and I see it and my teenage daughter see it, then even if the robot does not feel a thing, it, this would still be a moral situation. Then we would still say, is this really okay? Can this man do this? Is, should this be legal? But my own take on this would not be to grant rights to the machine, but it would be to say, well, at least ask, should it really be legal to treat this machine like, like he may wish out in the public because it, it uh, gives us some very hard moral situations and it gives a lot of uncomfort to, well, to a lot of people, or at least it, it may, it may do. We should remember saying that, that this is, this is in an age where, 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 where robots look, well, almost like a human and, and may not even be distinguishable, distinguishable from a distance. Um, so yes, robot rights is that it's a, it's a huge question and I, I try to describe it from a, a variety of angles in my book because 
there's a lot of things to think about also in order not to do something stupid i mean in order not to grant rights to something that actually does not feel a thing which i would i would think was a mistake sometimes you see uh, the rights concept being used to protect things like also should we should we grant rights to this river in order to protect it from pollution and the uh, the intention is obviously good but is rights the way of doing it since the river i mean it doesn't i suppose it does not feel punished but still we should take care of it so so uh, so it's a broad concept and we should really think uh, think uh, deep and think twice before we just use rights in this context and this is why it's also very important to to discuss it uh, at length yeah, you talk a lot, or I mean, you, you obviously flesh out the idea of this, uh, the morality and, and what is good. And we have had quite a, a large jump in, in the idea of what is good and bad, or at least some relative change as to what we describe as good or bad behavior. And so if you see somebody kicking a robot, the, the educational value for your teenager daughter uh, it seems like that would be very hard not to suggest that such visible mistreatment of a human-like object is is a bad thing. Yeah, and I, and I, I agree about that, and uh, and I'm not the only the only one. It's been discussed within philosophy, also many years before robots were even uh, thought about. Immanuel Kant, the German uh, uh, Enlightenment philosopher, felt that. Uh, well, at that moment, he didn't think that that animals, for instance, should have right rights, but he still thought that uh, it, it would like it would it would hurt our own uh, ability to make uh, sound moral judgments to get used to just treating animals poorly. And actually, he also thought that about certain kinds of like objects. So just destructive behavior in general he, he saw as damaging our our very important ability to make good moral judgments so in that in that way if we if we come into a society where you can treat robots the way you wish this may have a lot of other implications than just harming the robots like because it would it is likely to also do damage to our own moral uh, judgments. One of the things that I have no idea about, but I am very curious about, is the idea or the identification of pain as the sort of indicator of uh, its consciousness. And in, in a recent podcast, I was listening to how they're using virtual reality to help people get over grieving, and uh, as well as pain. And, it, you know, we could have sliced our foot very badly in a, in a serious accident or in a danger place. We run from that place and we feel no pain. And then about a mile further away, we look down, see our foot, oh, and then the pain hits us. So our ability to put off pain as human beings is kind of peculiar because it's not, it's not always on per se in terms of when something horrible has happened to you. So I, flesh out for us this idea of, of how pain is an indicator of our consciousness. Yes, well, I, 
I write a lot about uh, empathy in in my book, and um, and because and then I use pain as an example a lot because pain um, is well, it's a very immediate uh, example of having a kind of conscious experience when you feel pain that's that's just a very good example of a conscious experience when i look at you and uh, well now you run the 100 meters and you start looking at your foot yourself and you and you feel the pain and you also express the pain well then i can i can read your face and i can hear your voice and i can also maybe see your foot uh, and then out of this my empathy will uh, will awaken and i will I will I will mirror your pain in my own brain, and I, it will not hurt me like it hurts it hurts you. But I, I get a pretty good impression that now Minter is, is is in pain. Um, but the problem with it, stop me if I'm going out in a different. No, it's direction. all good. Hey, listen, I love rabbit holes. Let's go. Let's go. Here it goes. Uh, all right. Uh, but but the thing about it is that that my impression of your pain and the the fact that i do feel empathy towards you is not a proof that you have this pain it's just a, it's it's my mirror neurons uh, well working in the brain and that's a good feature because that's like anthropomorphism that's a way of interacting in the world but it's not a proof that anything is actually going on inside you so these expressions that you start asking about well they are signs of uh, something going on but they are not a proof of something going on and this is what gives rise to another philosophical problem that i treat in my book called uh, the problem of other minds this is one of these problems we discussed uh, at university like a sort of academic game because i mean who would really doubt that their neighbor or the guy sitting next to them in the metro does not have a mind himself no one would but um, but the problem takes on a different um, a different thing when when it comes to robots because then then we actually do not know if it does has, have a brain even if we don't think so 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 uh, so but but back to the empathy um, so so that is a sign of this but it's not a, it's not a proof and this is what gives us so many problems when it comes to to robots did I even add? answer your question here i'm sorry if i i took a different direction no it's all good but i think we need a little rewind yeah um so in the end of the day i think what this all points to is is a central argument in your book which is the idea of the problem of hard consciousness yes and because pain is maybe the indicator of the the journey into it and the easiest expression of it and even there as in my comment or my question really was i think there's doubt sometimes about pain in one individual because you know we grieve for example but we we may put off the grieving we'll do things to avoid the grieving so we will avoid the pain by doing these are the human instincts that, that allow us to you know let's say defend ourselves from the pain of losing somebody or in the case of, of a sliced foot the ability to get away from the danger. But the thing you talk about most, Thomas, I mean, I think is the, the, the thread that unites everything and decides for us what we should be doing when it comes to robots is the decision or the ability to, un, to solve the hard problem of consciousness. 
Yes. And that is, that is really a hard, a hard problem. Uh, can you, can you start by defining, help, can you start by explaining what is hard, the hard problem and the soft problem or the easy problem? Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's first coined by a, an Australian philosopher now living in the, in the United States called David Chalmers. And, and because when, when you explain this to people and say, now I take the robot as an example and say, okay, but, but this robot, it, um, you, 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 you tramp it on its foot and it screams and it does everything that, that you would, uh, well, I think it would do in pain um, and and the, then the question is no no okay sorry I'm going to rephrase take, take a human being um, because if, if you are in pain you react in a certain way and I would even be able or I would not but a, a neuro uh, scientist would be able to explain what goes on in your brain what goes on in your nervous system when you uh, when you experience or when you apparently experiences this brain and she can explain everything about that. But one thing that, that, and that's what Chalmers calls the easy problem of consciousness. Like you can, you can watch these things and you can, you can be certain that this, this person, this individual is able to react to outer stimuli uh, in a reasonable way. And that, that looks like consciousness. Uh, but that is not the hard problem of consciousness the hard problem of consciousness is uh, the pain itself or the feeling you have inside if you see the color red then it's not what happens between the red rose and the, and the light waves and your eyes and your nervous system that is not what it's about it is the impression you have of red because your impression of red I will not be able to determine if, if when you see a red rose, your experience is actually what I have as a green experience, because that experience is private. This sounds strange to many people because we think oh, we know so much about brains. We know so much about psychology and psychiatry. Of course, we know this too. But the fact is that we don't. A lot of research is being carried out in the field. A lot of very good scientists are working to find out, well, what 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 is consciousness what what does it take to make this arise but they don't well they have good theories but but we don't have any sound facts to say this is it um and and like i said earlier it's not a problem really for human beings because we just well we we mirror each other and we think okay well well Minza probably has consciousness too and everybody else i meet um Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. But what about a cat then? We cannot ask it. 
Many years ago, the, the French philosopher René Descartes said that, well, animals actually don't have, well, he didn't say uh, consciousness, but he used the concept of souls, which is pretty fairly similar to what we, we use uh, the concept uh, of consciousness for today. And he said, they are actually just me mechanic machines. So when you hurt a cat, it doesn't feel the pain like you would feel it. It only reacts as if it does, which also maybe was convenient for Descartes since he could uh, conduct um, vivisection on animals, which, which was a, a normal uh, scientific procedure at the time, because you could do that since it doesn't actually feel the pain. It just screams, but don't worry, it's nothing. Um, but, but the hard problem of consciousness is what made that possible and what actually still makes it possible to ask a reasonable question about it today, saying that but we cannot know, we think so. And I think luckily we uh, sort of spread the con concept out to many animals now that we think this also feel pain. You know, in, in the old days we said, but, but it's a fish, fish, fish don't feel pain. Well, well, my take on that would be, well, it probably does feel, is, it probably is able to feel pain, but it's not able to express it in a way that we can read. So it's, it's our own deficiencies that, that make us, makes us think so. Our own deficiencies. Yeah. <laughs> well, our, our cognitive uh, deficiencies, we, we, we don't have access. We don't have access to the to what could be the conscious mind of, of a fish or a cat or a robot. We can investigate it and we can try and find, find uh, things that, uh, that are parallel from the nervous system of a human being, from the nervous system of a monkey, from the nervous system of a dog, a cat, mouse, and on and on down the, the ladder, the further you get from, from the human uh, genome. And we can investigate it and find common things about how the nervous system works. And then we could infer that, okay, but this is probably conscious as well. Whereas, would we do that with a tree or with a plant? We would just naturally think, oh, obviously, this is not conscious. Um, and I and I don't and I don't don't think it is. Some some do also. Uh, the, some tree huggers, the tree huggers, the tree huggers amongst the tree huggers. <laughs> but but uh, but the, all that. I mean, as long as we treat the animals uh, good and fair, which I think we should, is not a big uh, problem in our everyday lives. But when it comes to robots, it actually may become a problem because where would we where would we place them on this ladder of being consciousness at the mouse level or at the tree level or at the dog level or at the monkey level well if we have a complete simulation of you for instance in 20 years well it would be hard for us instinctively not to react as if it is conscious and it is by now at least impossible for us to prove is it the one way or the other? We we don't know, and this is also this is interesting interesting uh, regarding the rights question because, well, I would say no. Obviously, we should not use rights for these machines. Um, but then again, what if it actually does possess consciousness and we keep them as slaves? That would be a disaster on on, on the level of of Descartes um, cutting cats slicing, open, yeah. But, slicing cats open to see what went on inside them. Is, is, is this completely weird for you or does it make sense? 
<laughs> it does. It does. No, I know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm following you the whole way. And I think what's interesting about your book, Killing Sophia, Thomas, is that you're, you're putting on the table questions that we do need to look at. And as I said at the outstart, what I believe and why I wrote Artificial Empathy, the interesting part about what we're doing and you are doing with Killing Sophia is, is helping us to explore ourselves, not just the robots, but by needing to look at these questions and answer some of them, which involves our, our moral compass and how it's evolving and evolved over the years. And, and let's just say with a tree, should we be thinking about the consciousness of a tree? Well, I think that's a little bit, that's a, a yard too far for me. Um, and, and, and somehow when we as a society are trying to do so much good everywhere, we kind of forget to do good to ourselves. And, and we, if we need a robot or a cat or a dog to talk to because we feel so alone and not listened to, um, I think we ought to need to explore internally, I mean, amongst ourselves, what's gone wrong with our society such that we are going to start to want to be empathic on robots. We're going to want to have a robotic companion living at home to talk to because no one else listens to me. Yeah, I agree. And um, and the, the problem is that, uh, yeah, that's what you're saying, actually, that the market for this is huge. And it's all—it's already here. There's already um, large and successful robotic companies supplying um, robots for the elder care, and that's not only for physical tasks. Tasks that's also for for conversational robots, and they are being marketed as a true and loyal companion in your, the senior days of your lives, which is sad, really, because uh, like like you. Um, like you say, well, well, the elderly, someday it'll be us, hopefully. Um, <laughs> doesn't anybody want to talk to them? And there's an existential point to it as well, because when you, at the end of the day, what you, when you look at, at what makes people happy, that is, well, I'm sorry to say, but it's, it's not things and stuff and cars. It's friends and companions and, and husbands and wives and, and boyfriends and girlfriends. It's, it's other people. So actually what makes people most happy is caring for other people and helping out other people. So we are, when, when this thing about the elderly sector, when we, when we uh, apply uh, robots, conversational robots with it, I mean, of course, if you have lonely elderly people, that, that's a tragedy in itself, but we are also outsourcing what potentially could make us most happy, but we choose to work instead. And then we make the robots do the caring for the elderly people. But existentially, that's, that, that's, it's, I mean, it's, it's just, it's basically stupid because we, we don't, we don't help anybody. We just make things worse for us and probably also for the elderly, at least to the point that, um, that they don't start worrying too much. Does this machine actually have a consciousness? Does, does this machine love me too? Or do I know that it's just an algorithm? It's basically a very, very advanced statistical machine that I'm loving. Well, like you, you mentioned Sherry Turkle earlier on. Uh, she, she wrote a book about this called Alone Together um, because her, one of her points is that 
well, it, it is easier with, with, a, with a robot. It's easier because you, I mean, you don't have to argue with it or anything. So, so and, and she uh, experienced a lot of people who would actually choose that if they could. And she said, okay, but here you are then alone together because, because it's not really a companionship if the other, the other part doesn't feel anything, if the other part isn't able to experience anything. This is again why this this problem, the hard problem of consciousness, is it's such a such a puzzle and and such a yeah such, such a problem because it, it makes it hard for us to know what should be decided here. What I think is that there should be a broader like public um, dialogue, a conversation about it. Make make more people involved in it. What I sometimes mean uh, meet is that oh Thomas this kind of a little bit weird philosopher talking about these things again. But um, but I also experienced that after talking to people for just uh, 15 minutes or if people have read my book, um, which many have in Denmark by now, it's not issued uh, as we speak, as we record this podcast in your country yet. But but then they start to see the point saying, yes, this this is something we should we should discuss. And this is actually, this is, very important for for the whole direction of human civilization that sounds maybe uh over the edge but but it's it's not really it, it, it will affect us hugely so i of course that's really why this is such a fun and engaging conversation as far as i'm concerned thomas in your book you you do talk about the differences the cultural variations with regard to this question so it may be, as you say, a question for humanity around the world, but we have very different ideas of how to treat dogs uh, in, in our world. Um, so to, to name Saudi Arabia and China, the way that they uh, think of dogs is a very different way than we might in Denmark or in England or um, you know, uh, in the United States. And so as to you, you very clearly elaborate or, or you, you cite the research that talks about the variations in the animal kingdom down to the rats as opposed to a dog and, and so on. But how do, we, how do we figure out how to do that when we have even different ideas of how to treat a dog? Well, one of the points in my book is that we should... That, uh, now they, they, there's, a, there's a widespread... Uh, moral um, relativism meaning that people have this idea that moral well that's something that's relative to the culture you live in to the group you're part of or maybe to even to an individual take something as trivial as just eating a steak for 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 a hardcore vegan that would be considered cold-blooded murder whereas for for a I was almost saying a normal person, but but for any kind of meat eater, it would not even be a moral question. So that that's a, that's an example of moral being relative to just a, one person. It can also be relative to a group. I mentioned in my book that that in Denmark, it's it's normal uh, many places to to uh, to to go to the beach and for for women to to not wear a bra, for instance. So in Denmark, that's not it's not really a moral thing the whereas, same as in south of france and yeah, south of yeah. spain for sure yeah that's so that's that's it seems to be a cultural thing because in the in the, in the united states at least some places in the united states it's, it's considered to be well very immoral behavior right. and okay. in saudi arabia <laughs> of course yeah then then it, it would be punishable uh, like yeah 
in a hard way. Um, but examples like these, they uh, they make us think that okay, but then moral is just a relative thing. But I think that we should not let this uh, this view take us too far because some things I do not believe are, are relative. And this is where I'm, I'm really sorry about this pain thing, but it's just such a good example. If, if you apply serious pain to someone, um, like serious pain, if you have a, my, 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 one of my, my teachers, the professor at philosophy, he, he had an example saying, okay, if you have a bucket of boiling water poured down your back, that kind of pain, would would it would it be able to make that relative to the culture you live in? And he's think, okay, well, hardly. Um, that that is a universal pain. And if you look at um, you have the example about animal treatment in various country countries. Okay, fair enough. But if you look at uh, how people are treated in um, in dictatorships, they're treated very poorly. But is that a sign that in this country, in North Korea, that in North Korea, it's not a moral value not to apply pain to others? Well, I don't think so. Because when you see people escape from anything, they try to escape from pain. And that's that's no matter where in the world people are from. So we do have a lot of common ground when it comes to moral. And moral, the basics of moral, what is that about? Well, it's about freedom and it's about how you treat others but it's very much about well we simply cannot accept inflicting pain on others that's immoral behavior and i think that is immoral no matter where you live um and uh, but but people tend to forget that i think because because we have so many examples of uh, of morality being being relative but but i don't think it's relative i think morality is universal at, at many levels and Okay, you seem like you have a question. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Just, like, just like the notions of intelligence, we can consider spatial, mathematic, emotional intelligence. There's different versions of intelligence. And, and in the case of pain, uh, today's world, we have different versions and ideas of pain. So uh, post-traumatic uh, disorder, PTSD, um, uh, grieving is pain. And uh, you can have abuse is pain. Removal of freedom is pain. So these are ideas that are, are deeply, at this point, in my opinion, cultural. And, and what we think of as freedom uh, and rights of an individual, even human rights, which somehow is related to this pain question, removing of freedom, removing of, of people, <laughs> and then pouring down hot water on the back. But uh, there, there's this gradation of, of what is pain, and, and we have very different moral ideas as to what constitutes pain on a human being. Yeah, that, that, uh, that, that's a very good point. Um, and we should probably not be overly optimistic about how far we can, uh, can take this uh, universal claim about pain, because because it, it is also uh, relative in some instances. But I, but this is why I use such uh, such uh, well far out or, or like heavy examples because I use examples that I think everybody must be able to agree on this. That's the one with the the boiling water I, I mentioned before. What about freedom then? Well, 
then, then it gets maybe gets political, which is not my my specialty. But well, it but is. I, but wait, if I remind you, this is what you studied, so that's why it's all for you. Okay, it is my specialty. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I <laughs> <laughs> Rewind. Yeah. <laughs> Can you? <laughs> okay, so that is my no. Um, but freedom, I think freedom is seen as a value in. Uh, in, I don't know. In, in, is it not seen as a value in many, in most countries? Well, I think uh, it's part of the human condition to want to fight for freedom. Yes. The question is, what are you fighting from? Because sometimes you might be fighting from the oppression of a dictator, uh, an abusive husband, or, or um, just the, the freedom to say whatever I want to say. And so we have different versions, and you know, the liberty or freedom is involved in so many constitutions. And differently interpreted. Yes, and it'll and it'll very quickly get complicated because then you could have like if you have a communist saying that, uh, uh, well, communist regimes are not known for us Westerners to to promote freedom. But a communist could say, well, but what if you live at the very bottom of a capitalistic free society? Is that person free? Well, it may be free in principle. But in practice, it's not able. To, this person is not able to do anything. So, it, so we say no. It's not free. You need to have uh, a certain amount of um, of financial uh, equity to be able to do anything. So we should redistribute to to make people free. So uh, okay, I take some of your money and I give it to a poor person. That may take a little bit of your freedom, but it gives more freedom to the person I give it to than I take from you. So that. So a communist could argue that I'm trying to promote freedom as well. And then it becomes a matter of degree. Uh, how, how much do you want to do it? You can also have the same discussion about the freedom of, of speech, uh, because then you, and then you then, then it starts to come into a hierarchy. If you take in China, for instance, a very limited freedom of speech. But China could say, OK, we have had clan wars for thousands of years and we have had poverty and violence and a lot of bad things. Now we are trying to build a rich society here in China, China because we think that a minimum of, of financial, um, well, the power should, should be distributed to everyone in order to have any kind of freedom. So now you want to have the freedom of speech and then suddenly we have an opposition and all kinds of dangerous things that may, uh, that may destroy the project we have of making China a rich country. I, I must stress that I do not agree about this argument. I'm just... I'm just of course, this is, this is philosophy uh, here. Yes, <laughs> exactly. I'm just saying that, that you could argue that, that I mean... The restriction of the freedom of speech could be an argument for saying, but then, then our financial stability may, may vanish and you'll be poor and then you won't be free anyway. So we just help you prioritize wisely. What I'm saying is that you can, you can, uh, well, you can make arguments for, for supporting one or the other. And I think the main point of it is that most people would tend to 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 uh, to defend freedom as a value, you won't find anybody say pain is good, freedom is good. I mean, who would freedom is bad? Who who would get elected on those notes? I don't think anybody would. They would they would talk about it and and say in order to get this, we have to do as I say. Uh, you know, certainly okay, that, 
the world of democracy has its own failings and issues to deal with. Thomas, in the time that's left us, I wanted to talk about one more thing, which is really your view into what's happening in AI and in the nearer term. Um, and so specifically, I was thinking of uh, empathic AI, artificial intelligence, a topic I studied back in 2018-19 for my book. And I was wondering, what, where are we with empathy being encoded into bots? Has, has there been any uh, interesting projects that have recently come up or, or that you see on the horizon? One thing that, uh, that I look very much on right now uh, is digital humans, you know, um, an animated person working as a chatbot on the internet. Anybody can access those. And um, so that's, that's like the digital screen version of a robot. And uh, it has not been researched as thoroughly, but, but we know that, that we also have empathy towards um, animated persons on screens. And this is not a future, um, a future technology. This is a technology that, that is being rolled out as we, as we speak. And it's really good and it's really fun to play with. And um, yeah, many good things to say about it. But we should also notice about this technology that because we develop, we anthropomorphize it like we do with the robots and we uh, feel empathy towards it like we do with the robots, maybe not at the same scale, but still we do. Um, that gives it uh, a huge power. And some of the, the builders of this technology say that, uh, well, this technology, it, uh, it has a four times bigger conversion rate than a, a normal chatbot. And that makes it uh, a fantastic tool for selling. Um, and that's interesting, I think, if uh, when that comes out as salespersons on the internet, I'm sure we'll love it, but, uh, but we might also get manipulated a little bit. So that's what I'm looking at right now. And, uh, and people ask me a lot about it when I'm, I'm doing uh, talks. Uh, so, so that's something I think we should be aware of and look at with philosophical eyes, a bit of skepticism maybe indeed well i, I certainly um i think with, within the, the community of people studying empathy we obviously see how empathy can be used as a tool for bad um whether it's someone trying to manipulate is in marketing or or used um by sociopaths there are many ways that empathy can be used the wrong way if you're not careful. So Thomas, um, unfortunately, I think it's come to an end. I really wanted to get into a few other things, but that's life. We will leave, uh, you'll leave me frustrated, but hopefully for anyone listening, they'll get a chance to go and check out your book. That's out in Danish already. And uh, at the publication of this podcast will be out in English. How can people track you down, Thomas, get you to speak to them uh, talk to them about or, or, or follow your writings, readings. <laughs> What's the best way? Well, they can uh, they can follow me on uh, LinkedIn. That's probably the best. I try Twitter, but I'm not that active. And if you Google my name, I don't think anybody has the same name. You should be able to find it on my website and on my LinkedIn profile. And uh, yeah, I hope uh, people will, will fo follow and, and join the discussion. And it's been really, really nice talking to you as well. I'll put all that in the show notes. All right. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you so much for having me. Bye. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. 
If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash interdial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on mentordial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
Welcome to Don't Retire, Graduate, the podcast that asks you what you want to be when you grow up so you can graduate into retirement with a purpose and a passion, whether you're 25, 85, or any age in between. Gain actionable financial and mindset tips from your favorite authors, podcasters, and influencers to help you reach that exciting next chapter. Listen now and start building your path to financial freedom and reframing what retirement can mean to you. This is your host, Eric Brotman, reminding you, don't retire, graduate.